there was no established treatment when I started 15 years ago. Uh, now uh, we've, we've got randomized controlled trials, uh, larger scale, uh, we've got lots of pediatric papers coming out. Hello fabulous humans. Today we are talking about psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, otherwise known as PNES, with pediatric clinical psychologist Tyson Sorship, who's from the University of Calgary in Canada. Tyson explains to us how PNES are very different to epileptic seizures, but how to the untrained eye the two can be confused, and how people often experience actually both types. And rather importantly, we shall also be hearing about Tyson's research and effective treatment for children experiencing PNES. Hello there, Tyson Sorchuk. Could you please tell us all about yourself? And what do you do? And where are you from? Well, hi, Tori. Uh, my name is uh, Tyson Sorchuk. I'm a pediatric psychologist uh, from Calgary, Canada. Uh, I work at a neurology clinic at Alberta Children's Hospital, and I'm uh, a clinical assistant professor as well in the Department of Medicine. And, and I specialize in something called functional neurologic disorders uh, and primarily uh, a type of functional neurologic disorder that's called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. What is or what are PNES and how do they differ, differ from epilepsy and what are the overlaps as well? So and, and, and PNES is the, is the acronym. Uh, more recently uh, we're trying to call them functional seizures because uh, it's a more preferred term for patients we think. But So these are, these are transient uh, states of altered awareness or consciousness. Uh, they can involve uh, movements that will resemble seizures or completely akinetic, not moving. And rather than being uh, associated with the spike and wave or the uh, abnormal electrical discharges and epileptic seizures, they're related, we think, to a loss of functional connectivity between the brain areas and, and some specific brain areas. And uh, we, it's also related to what we think is abnormal emotion processing. So they're sometimes referred to as stress-related, uh, although it's a much more complicated thing than that. Uh, the important thing to know about them is that uh, they're very prevalent. So uh, probably about one quarter of all presentations, referrals to any epilepsy clinic in the world actually, will end up uh, being uh, PNES. And is there a frequent overlap between epilepsy and PNES? So you might have people who experience both conditions. Yeah, and, and, and there is, uh, which as you might guess can make diagnosis quite challenging. So in terms of presentations, uh, there's probably just as many uh, types of, of PNES uh, episodes as there are epilepsy, so everything from full-on convulsive movements to uh, more localized movements uh, to, to uh, varying sensations or subjective reports. So it does get complex, and that's why the diagnostic standard is, is actually to try and capture uh, an event while a patient is on a, an EEG uh, so that we can correlate or, or not with uh, the, the event that we can see. Now, uh, they can co-occur, so probably about a quarter of patients with psychogenic non-epileptic seizures uh, in our own data, our own studies, actually about 29% in pediatrics. They'll also have uh, epilepsy as well. And the, the adult studies suggest about 12% of all epileptics will, will also have a, at least one PNES event in their life lifetime. And, and part of the reason for that is because we know having epilepsy is actually a risk factor for the development of PNES. Why is that? Well, uh, we also know that uh, having uh, any type of uh, adversity, trauma to the brain, uh, surgeries, uh, even concussions 
uh, are or appear to be a risk factor for development of it. And we think it's because any compromise to the neurophysiology of the brain uh, allows for that loss of functional connectivity to, to occur more easily. But this is still a, an active area of research. So what is the frequency of misdiagnosis then? Uh, well, the frequency of misdiagnosis, uh, I mean, it would be it would depend on the sample, but uh, we know in adults, so in developed countries, for example, the studies suggest there's a five to seven year diagnostic delay. So that means uh, that it will take a long time for patients to get uh, properly diagnosed in uh, developing countries that don't have access to video EEG facilities. It's upwards of 10 years uh, for that uh, diagnostic delay. It seems to be much better in pediatrics uh, of the small number of studies that have been done. It, I mean, it looks to be a year or less uh, in most cases. But yeah, and, and during that diagnostic delay, you, you can imagine the, the quality of life for the, for the patients, uh, the unnecessary diagnostic tests, not to mention the uh, you know, what we call iatrogenic harm, so dealing with the side effects of, of anti-seizure medications, uh, escalating dosages of those if you're not getting the appropriate response. Uh, there, there is a published case study of one patient that in fact did, did die in, in their 20s uh, because of uh, presenting to an emergency department and had a rare side effect, uh, some increasing dosages of an anti-epileptic medication. But, so so it's, it's a big problem, and of course the, the first goal of diagnosis is to, to avoid that, so to avoid the necessary tests. It's bad enough being given those drugs if you need them, um, but I just can't imagine how horrific it would be for somebody who had a misdiagnosis, and especially as a child because of how that affects you cognitively, well often anyway, and that can really hold you back in school. Mm -hmm. Have you had any patients who've been in that situation? Yes, yeah, it's, it's not uncommon at all for me to come to, to have a patient referred, uh, and, and, and you're right, um, they develop almost new problems uh, as a result of that, because really when you don't get a response from an anti-epileptic, I mean, the next goal is to switch, but also titrate it up. You, you, you get lots of other problems, you get embarrassment, uh, fear of having episodes in, in public, and, and this is why the, the length of time uh, one has had psychogenic non-epileptic seizures is a very important factor. We, we, we've published uh, our own study that showed uh, if it was more than a year, uh, the patients were six times more likely to have incomplete recovery uh, from undergoing treatment for, for PNES. So, uh, yeah, lo lots of problems that can develop along the way. Do you know what the common causes are of PNES? How much is like genetic? How much is down to environment? How much is t down to, I don't know, consumption of certain things you could put in your mouth? I don't know, like drugs or what could cause it? Probably none of those things that you've mentioned there, Tori. We're attempting to address this in studies of risk factors for, for psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. So so one risk factor, uh, probably probably one of the more robust ones, but it, but it seems to be mostly for adults, not for children, that develop PNES is, is trauma. So uh, developing post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, so you can think of war vets, uh, those that have gone through uh, traumatic events, accidents, uh, physical, uh, emotional, sexual abuse. Uh, it used to be thought that this was a, you know, a prime or required risk factor for the development of PNES. We now know that's certainly not the case. Uh, it can be as high as perhaps 50% in adult samples. In children, it, it's not very high. Uh, now, a bit, probably a bit higher than the general population, but uh, probably less than a, a group of depressed uh, 
children or adolescents, for example. So uh, we know it's a, it's a complex interplay. In, in pediatrics, uh, in terms of PNES, we think there's probably some, some uh, hyperarousal that develops uh, as, as they're developing. And in childhood, uh, there might be some adverse events. Uh, typically, we're not seeing big traumatic events, but rather, you know, clusters of more smaller adverse events. And then there seems to be some type of triggering factor. Sometimes it can be a concussion, actually, or, or an injury or some increased stress in their lives. Another big one that uh, that we've identified or we think we have in some recent studies uh, is, is puberty. So onset of puberty really cranks up your sympathetic arousal. That's traumatic enough for most people, to be honest, puberty. So, Well, well that, that, that's true. Yeah, there could be other factors there. There's a lot of turmoil there at that time, isn't there? Um, and, and it's also where where lots of the comorbidities for PNES come into play. So that's when uh, your anxiety disorder diagnoses start peaking, uh, depression, things like that. Uh, yeah, but it's not not genetic. We we don't know why most people do not develop PNES that that, that go through trauma uh, or have these experiences. But uh, yeah, it's an active area of ongoing research. But there's probably some neurological factors involved that we don't quite understand yet. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting indeed. What do you think the future holds for people affected by PNES? Because as you've mentioned, there's more and more research going on now, thank goodness, which we need and we need funding for. Um, what, how do you see the next sort of like two, five, ten years for people affected? Prevention as well as treatment, actually. Right now, even in the last few weeks, uh, looking at the literature, it's, it's exploding. Uh, or at least when I started in this area about 15 years ago, there was the very, very few studies. There was literally a handful of child studies. Uh, very kind of early stage uh, descriptive studies uh, of psychogenic seizures. There was no established treatment when I started 15 years ago. Uh, now uh, we've, we've got randomized controlled trials, uh, larger scale. Uh, we've got lots of pediatric papers coming out. We've got uh, new biomarker papers coming out that, that may potentially help us diagnose it. Uh, and we're learning more and more about the treatments. So we're, we're getting beyond the early stages of research of, of theoretical models, possibilities, theories. We're getting more into testable uh, hypotheses now. Uh, and and the, the number of studies is it's quadrupled probably in the last few years alone. That's brilliant. And I guess it also shows that more people want to be involved in research now as well, which is really cool that we are getting more patients and families say, you know what, I'll be part Mm -hmm. of this. And the other thing I'm I'm seeing uh, in in new uh, neurology residents, uh, pediatric residents, just from where I I work is uh, they, they know what it is whereas they didn't before. Uh, they know how to diagnose it. They knew, know the, the salient uh, uh, diagnostic signs, markers, and they also know how to, to describe it to families uh, as opposed to just being discharged or dismissed as uh, you're just stressed out. Um, so, so I'm seeing that in medical education as well. And uh, also uh, the websites. So there's uh, fndhope.org, international uh, chapters in various countries, uh, more websites like that. There's much more resources and awareness out there. And uh, just from my own perspective, when I sometimes I'll I'll speak with uh, school staff. If you've got a patient that's at the school, they don't know how to manage the frequent psychogenic seizures. Uh, Ten years or so ago, none of them knew what I was talking about 
we had to start from zero. So things are looking up anyway. So that's that's brilliant. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, should um, they just check you out on LinkedIn? Is that the way to go? Yeah, LinkedIn, uh, the University of Calgary. My profile's on there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm scattered across a lot of websites so <laughs> we've got a couple of great papers out as well and i'll provide links to those beneath this recording as well if anybody's interested in checking those out thank you so much for joining us today tyson for an absolute pleasure yeah thanks tori thanks for for drawing attention to this uh this area if you'd like to connect you can find me on twitter linkedin facebook or instagram and i'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show please subscribe to epilepsy sparks insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode i'm tori robinson Thanks for listening.